0: Jodcast, bigger than ever before, with George Bendo, Claire Bretherton, Ian Harrison, Indy LeClerc, Ian Morrison, Josie Pierce, and Hannah Stacy. The Jodcast, March 2015 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George and joining me in the studio today are Hannah and Indy. Hello. Hello. And this is our 200th podcast. Hooray. Yay. (laughs) In the show this time, Josie interviews Dr. Rowan Smith about star formation in the early and recent universe. Ian Morrison and Claire Brotherton take a look at what's happening in the March night sky. And we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Ian with this
1: month's news. In the news this month, solar system buzzed by dwarf star, BICEP-2 bursts, and Ceres shows some mysterious spots. Astronomers revealed the startling discovery this month that the solar system received a close visit from a binary star system a mere 70,000 years ago, well within human history. Using telescopes in South Africa and Chile, a group of astronomers led by Eric Mamajek of Rochester University investigated the motion of the object WISE J072003.20-084651.2, more popularly known as Schultz's star. Actually, a binary system of two stars, the object was discovered by Ralph Dieter Schultz in data from NASA's WISE, or Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, mission in late 2013. Interest was piqued due to the relatively close distance to us and the observation that it was apparently moving with almost no tangential velocity, i.e. side-to-side motion on the sky. By measuring the Doppler shift of the light coming from the star, a team of astronomers was able to infer that it was moving away from us at great speed. They then simulated a large number of potential orbits consistent with the system's current position and motion, finding that nearly all showed that it passed through the Oort cloud, a group of tiny icy planetesimals which exist at the solar system's extreme limits at more than 100 times the distance to neptune coming within 0.8 light years of earth this passage occurred extremely recently so far as the universe is concerned around 70,000 years ago, just as early humans were beginning their first migrations from the African continent. Unfortunately, early astronomers would not have been aware of the close passage of Schultz's star, as it consists of a tiny red and brown dwarf pair, both less than 10% of the mass of the sun, and even at the point of closest approach, would not have been any brighter than 10th magnitude, making it around 50 times fainter than can be seen with a human eye. Such a close flyby could still represent a problem for Earth, however, as it can perturb the orbits of larger objects in the Oort cloud and send them towards the inner solar system. The simulation of Marmajek and collaborator Scott Baranfield showed that there was only around a 1 in 10,000 chance that this could happen in the case of Schultz's star. Such close approaches are also relatively rare, with the next expected comparable event being the possible passage of the rogue star HIP 85605, between 250 and 50,000 years from now. Also this month, cosmologists received the disappointing, if not unexpected, news that last year's much-lauded apparent detection of primordial gravitational waves by the BICEP-2 experiment has been confirmed as a false positive. The previously claimed detection was met with much excitement, as it would have represented extremely strong evidence in favour of inflation, the widely supported theory that, at very early times, the entire universe expanded at an exponential rate, blowing the tiniest quantum fluctuations up to the size of the observable universe and providing the seeds for all the structure we observe today this detection was in the form of a b-mode polarization of the cosmic microwave background this particular swirl in the pattern of the first light to exist in the universe has long been regarded as a smoking gun signature of inflation unfortunately as in so much of astronomy the size of this effect is expected to be tiny and there are other unrelated physical effects which can mimic it In the case of BICEP2's gravitational waves, this pesky contaminant was magnetised dust floating around inside our own galaxy, which is also capable of creating the B-mode swirl in the sky. When originally claiming their detection, the BICEP2 team had access to information from only one observational wavelength, meaning they were unable to separate the wavelength-dependent dust signal from the wavelength-independent inflation signal. They instead appealed to the assertion that the region of the sky they were looking at was comparatively free of dust, its effect could hence be ignored. Planck's satellite showed otherwise. Whilst Planck cannot see as sharply as the South Pole based bicep two, it has the advantage of looking at the entire sky in multiple frequency channels, enabling it to get a much clearer handle on the presence of dust. Astronomers' belief in the BICEP-2 detection was always slightly wobbly and was shaken further late last year, when Planck released a map showing many regions of the sky were far dustier than previously expected. Denimal finally came from work leading up to this month's research paper, in which the previously notoriously secretive Planck team agreed to combine their data with that of the other teams, BICEP-2 and Keck experiments. This combination of data appears to confirm that the previously seen signal was indeed dust and that no gravitational waves from inflation have been detected. The saga has provoked much introspection in the astronomical community on the relative merits of releasing early results and the generation of widespread publicity, as was the case for BICEP-2. There is still cause for some optimism, however. The new result puts a new upper limit on the amount of gravitational waves which could have been produced by inflation, disfavoring some previously popular models, and future experiments will aim to make the necessary more sensitive detection with the balloon-borne spider experiment making its first flight in January, with data now being analysed. And finally, the dwarf planet Ceres gave astronomers a surprise this month when a second bright spot appeared on its surface. Ceres is the largest object we know of in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, and has been imaged by NASA's Dawn spacecraft, which was dispatched in 2007 to study the largest object in the asteroid belt. As dawn has approached Ceres, it has been able to capture sharper images, showing that the previously known single bright reflection spot was in fact two, appearing at the bottom of the same crater, Basin, on the dwarf planet's surface. Astronomers currently have no concrete evidence as to what these reflective spots could be, but have suggested they could be the result of geological processes erupting chemicals such as water, ammonia or methane, and forming a so-called cryovolcano. From the 6th of March... Dawn will enter into an orbit around Ceres, gathering more data and hopefully telling us more about the odd, shimmering blotches. Thanks for that, Ian.
0: Now Josie interviews Dr Rowan Smith about star formation in the early and recent universe.
2: Today I'm interviewing Dr Rowan Smith. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you very much. Karen has just arrived here at Manchester. She's previously based at the Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics in Heidelberg. So I should also say a warm welcome to Manchester.
3: Thank you very much. I'm liking it so far.
2: So firstly, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you work on?
3: I work on star formation. So I'm interested in how stars form in our Milky Way galaxy in the distant past when the first galaxies were forming. And I tackle this problem using large simulations, using some computer models to get an idea of the physics which might be going on in these regions.
2: How would the older, earlier stars be different from what we have in more recent star formation?
3: Well, it's quite an interesting problem, because of course we know that stars form everywhere. When we look at the very early galaxies, we can see them there. But the physical conditions are quite different. And because in the early universe, you had this very hot gas, so about hundreds to thousands of Kelvin, so really hot, but it was also really, really dense. Whereas in the present day, we have temperatures which are much lower. Where stars form in our own galaxy, we have really cold gas. So maybe only a few 10 Kelvin or something like that. And yet in both cases, we get stars forming. So when we look at the first stars to form, we have to think of you know, how do you form in this really hot, dense environment? And what we find is that you only get small amounts of stars forming. So you get a small system like a one star and maybe a few companions, like a maybe a binary system and that these might be quite massive stars, so maybe 40 times the mass of our own Sun. Whereas, of course, today we find that most stars are much lower mass, so similar to our Sun, or even a wee bit less massive. And, of course, stars today are also different because they form in clusters, so you get lots of stars forming in the same region, all affecting each other.
2: So the conditions for the much older stars were very different to what they are now. Was the structure different as well in the way that they formed?
3: The stars in the early universe are different because the ingredients which you have to make them are different. So the first stars formed when there was only hydrogen and helium, and so that meant they were quite simple structures. However, once the first stars die and explode in supernova explosions, they introduce lots of different metals and elements into the gas, which can then form the next type of stars. So stars today, like our sun, they also have lots of different ingredients in addition to hydrogen and helium. And so they burn at a slightly different temperature, though in essence they are all still stars.
2: So in in your seminar today you said that as well as running all the simulations, that you were going to also be looking and comparing these with data as well. So what data will you be using?
3: Well, one of the reasons why it's good to be here at Manchester is, of course, you have all these nice instruments and expertise in observing star formation regions. And that's the problem we always have when we're trying to understand anything in our galaxy, is you just see what's on the sky. So it's as if you're trying to understand a cloud. And you you look at it, you know, it might look like an elephant from one direction, you know. It might look like a stick man from another direction. But that just depends on how you look at it. So if you look in different wavelengths, you might see something different. And you can never understand that third dimension. You don't know if you're just looking at something which is small and close or big and far away. And so what we hope to do with the simulations is make a model of how we think the physics works. We put in the basic ingredients that we think you need to form stars, the basic physical processes. We know that gravity has to pull the mass together. We know that that force is opposed by the thermal energy within the gas. And we know that we have random turbulent motions which stir things up. And then we try and take our simulation and make it into a fake observation so maybe something which would be done by a facility such as ALMA, and then compare the two. And the idea is that if the two match, we can then use the simulation basically as a kind of guidebook or manual to understand the actual star formation which is going on in these regions and understand what's in that missing dimension which you can't see in one with a telescope.
2: So when you're looking at these star-forming regions, would you be looking at in ones in sort of a particular type of galaxy where there's a lot more active star formation or less?
3: At the moment, to do this process of really trying to understand things, I'm trying to focus on stars that form in the Milky Way, because the advantage we have there is that, well, you can just see it a lot more clearly. It's closer, and so you can see a much higher resolution, you can observe much finer details, And of course, it's easier for us to know the ingredients and the local conditions which are going on in those regions. So at least to start with, we hope to understand star formation in our own Milky Way galaxy. And then you can say, oh, what if we observe it in a different galaxy where we have slightly different temperatures, where the metals, the ingredients which are in the gas are different? You know, how would it look in that regime? And then you can contrast and compare, and you know, try and understand how important various physical processes are.
2: Okay, so talking about the different regions where stars were forming, another thing that you brought up in your talk was about filamentary structure. Is there a lot of that in the Milky Way? Is that another good point for observing?
3: Definitely. I think that's something which we're really appreciating these days is that actually we get these long, stretched-out filaments of gas just about everywhere we look. There's been a recent space mission, the Herschel mission, and that looked at lots of star-forming regions. There was this common theme that you'd see these large filaments across the region, and then stars forming on them like uh, beads on a string. And so we realise that these long, dense strands of gas are seem to be really connected to the environments in which stars form. And we also find when we look at the galaxy as a whole, even the clouds in which the stars form are themselves filaments. We have this idea, we have you know, filaments within filaments. It seems to be a fundamental structure, kind of building block of the, of the galaxy. And when we look at how things collapse, they always form first into these long extended filaments before they collapse into spheres. So it's a really crucial process when things collapse to form stars.
2: And is that only occurring in recent star formation, or would that happen no, with those early type be, stars as well?
3: It seems to be reasonably universal. The very first stars, they formed in much simpler systems, and they formed an environment which was more spherical. And that's because they formed at the very centre of halos of dark matter which are very smooth objects, and the gravity from these pulls the mass towards the centre. But as time goes on, and the gas gets new ingredients in it, which allows it to cool more efficiently, it becomes easier to collapse, and you get these filamentary structures forming increasingly frequently. And as you get a big, turbulent mess of gas, and so by turbulent, what I mean is you have very high velocities, so you have supersonic shocks going off in the gas, which are driven by supernova, and just the stirring of stars going round in the galaxy. This keeps things moving, and then the shock fronts themselves stretch things out into these filamentary geometries. So with things get increasingly filamentary.
2: Okay, so when comparing with observational data, would you be more excited to see a match or to see a mismatch? <laughs>
3: <laughs> in truth, I think you would probably see more from a mismatch. That tells you that you are missing something. And then the exciting thing is to think, okay, obviously in a computer model, you start with something reasonably simple, and then you add additional physics and the idea is that you test it, see if it matches if it doesn't you know that that thing which you left out is quite important so you need to understand so basically it's telling you there's something new that we need to understand here problem is that sometimes when things match there's lots of different reasons why it could match and you're not quite sure whether the most important thing was the temperature of the gas or the fact that it was turbulent for example you're not quite sure which physical factor was the most important.
2: So, it can sometimes be easier to make more progress if you are wrong. Yeah, than if sometimes you are right.
3: being wrong is um, actually more beneficial. <laughs> Not always, though. We do hope to get it right in the end. We just have to try and then try and work out in your simulation you know, what was the reason, what was the most important process here that went into making this. And that tells you what you need to form a star.
2: That's great. Thank you. I wish you all the best with hopefully seeing a mismatch with your simulations.
3: Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. And <I'm> fixing it. <laughs>
2: Thanks for that,
0: Josie. Now we come to the part of the show where we fin all those other things we can't fin anywhere else, the odds and ends.
4: So I'll kick things off, and I've got um, two short but sort of slightly related on and ends. The first one is the fact that Buzz Aldrin has appeared in front of a uh, Senate subcommittee, the, the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Space, Science, and Competitiveness, to argue the case for a permanently manned base on Mars run by the US astronauts and NASA. Aldrin thinks that going to Mars without actually setting up a colony, uh, so just doing round trips, doesn't really make sense from a scientific, technical, uh, or financial point of view. And uh, and he reckons that the moon is is small fry, is too small fry for the USA, and he thinks that if, if the US try and set up something on the moon, that other nations would catch up quickly, so he advocates going straight to mars um so he's he's developed this whole sort of architecture around how to establish a colony on mars with the first landings he envisions in 2038 so it's not too far away it's uh you know sort of 20 odd years in the future and um he sketched out sort of the basics in front of this subcommittee um and so it would be sort of on a commercial and international basis and you'd leverage things like asteroid rendezvous and also settling Mars in, in a way that he calls uh, using this developed, carefully developed risk mitigation architecture, and also has devised or thought up a way of using a robotic cycler between Mars and Earth. So essentially you'd have a sort of a regular uh, robotic mission that, that, you'd, that would cycle between Mars and Earth and that you'd, you'd get to using some, some other sort of spacecraft. And he he wasn't the only one talking to the Senate Subcommittee. There were two other NASA astronauts, uh, Walt Cunningham, who was one of the pilots on the the lunar module pilot on the Apollo Seven mission, which aimed to go to Earth orbit in 1968, and Mike Massimino, who was on a couple of space shuttle missions that serviced the Hubble Space Telescope in 2002 and 2009. And uh, they also sort of made the case for for a mission to Mars, citing amongst other things the benefits that came out the overall benefits to, to technology and humanity that came out of the Apollo space program and also the sort of a little bit pessimistic scenario where we we mess up too badly on Earth that we need to find somewhere else to live. Uh, hopefully it won't come to that. But they did say that it will inspire generations of of engineers and scientists and kids for the future um, and that spaceflight is the way to go. And I think uh, some, we on the Judcast heartily agree with that sentiment. So uh, hopefully that's something that's going to come. However, it will be difficult and expensive to get people to Mars. And all three astronauts uh, told the committee that they needed to raise NASA's budget as a fraction of GDP. And uh, at the moment, it gets about half a percent of the uh, federal budget, whereas at the height of the Apollo missions, that figure was 4.5 percent of the federal budget, which was something like $110 billion in today's dollars. And they reckon that today you need three times that amount to, to successfully mount this sort of colonization of Mars. So we're looking at around ballpark figure around 300 billion dollars which is which is a lot by anybody's standards even even the u.s and in a related little tidbit of news so we know that the private company we've talked about these guys before private company spacex that's elon musk's rocket company essentially has performed its first dual satellite mission so it sent up two satellites at once and the, one of the reasons it's been able to do that is because these satellites are entirely electrically powered and electrically driven so instead of using conventional f- rockets for for thrust, they use xenon ion engines. So essentially, it electromagnetically accelerates xenon ions to provide thrust. This means that they don't need bulky fuel tanks or anything like that on the, on the satellite, and they can uh, have a large payload. Or in this case, they could just fit two smaller satellites onto the rocket. Um, the only drawback to this, because there's always a drawback, is that the satellites end up being much, much slower. And so instead of a few weeks from for, for the satellite to get into its correct orbit around the earth it now to, it now will take it something like the order of months and so the, these were two telecom satellites sort of run of the mill things to help bounce off your mobile radio signals whatever and for example one of the one of the satellites operated by UTELSAT is going to take 8 months to get in the correct position that it needs to be uh so it's only going to start operations by the end of this year Due to the nature of the launch, we've talked about SpaceX recovering their first stage on the Falcon rockets before, but they haven't managed to test that out uh, for this launch. Um, Although they do say that they're getting very close to actually managing to recover the first stage of the rocket and land it on a barge in the middle of the sea. So
0: one of my thoughts on the first time that you brought up is that the U.S. government, as well as a lot of governments across the world, is currently oriented towards cutting uh, budgets. And in the United States in particular, the Republican Party just took over both branches of Congress. Their Republican Party in the past has been uh, very oriented towards cutting government spending. NASA looks like a prime target for that. So there's having the request for additional NASA spending is uh, kind of a tough thing to go with, but on the other hand, the type of message that uh Buzz Aldrin and the other astronauts put forward about uh, American competitiveness was the best thing that uh, or the best selling point that they could use with uh, Congress on this
4: yeah, for sure i mean it it is definitely optimistic to say the least, but I think that they You're right. It is the right angle to use, especially when you're trying to convince, you know, the government, you know, you're saying, look, you want to be the biggest and the best. So you've got to do this and this. And and that might, that might be an angle that could sell some Republicans on that sort of thing. Um, so fingers crossed and hopefully some money will, more money will get poured into it.
5: So there's also been this proposed one way, one way trip to Mars as well. So is this sort of an alternative to that or would this be something that would go alongside it? Because it seems to be more sort of send the robots first and then people later.
4: Yeah, I think I think this is more alongside it, and it's it's in a much more sustainable vein. And this is, I think the sort of the the Mars One whatever it's called is a bit more of a gimmick and a bit more sort of let's see if we can do this. And but but I think if NASA or indeed any sort of governmental agency plans something like this, it's going to be on a much more not thought out. I'm not saying they haven't. The other guys haven't thought it out, but it's going to be a much more sort of sustainable uh, mm-hmm. level. Yeah.
0: On the uh, ion propulsion drive, seeing this go from like a an interesting concept for a spacecraft that's going to travel very far from Earth, and where the uh, planetary scientists don't need data right away and can be patient and wait for a spacecraft to go there, get there, going from that to something which is more mundane like a couple of communication satellites is uh, kind of interesting. It shows it links into the uh, first thing that you talked about where you had Buzz Aldrin talking about how uh, a lot of this uh, technology that's d- developed for space research eventually trickles down to commercial re- uh, commercial uses, and then this is like a
4: specific example of that. Hannah, what's your... what's your end?
5: Uh, so, mine is this huge quasar that they've discovered in the early universe. It's um, a really high redshift of 6.3, which puts it about 900, 900 million years after the Big Bang. So, it's, it's pretty early in the universe, um, and it's the biggest and brightest quasar they've discovered. So, this thing has a luminosity of 420 trillion times that of the Sun and is 12 billion solar masses so it, it's pretty big and it's pretty bright
4: <laughs> to say the least
0: yeah <laughs> there are a couple of galaxies nearby which uh, like the sombrero galaxy which have black holes of 1 billion uh solar masses this is actually a factor of 10 bigger
5: mm mm-hmm. yeah so this um so this quasar is like, 7 times brighter than the quasars that are at the similar redshifts it's pretty big. Yeah, it's, it's,
4: it's, <laughs> it's
5: pretty big and pretty bright.
4: Stands out from the others,
5: yeah. Yeah. So it's um it's quite interesting um when you're trying to understand the way the quasars, black hole, and galaxies are evolving, and how the the quasar fits into the evolution of the the galaxies through time.
6: Well,
0: one thing I thought of when I saw this article was that um. There's this relation between the massive black hole within the galaxy and the mass of the bulge within the galaxy, the bulge being the spherical part of the galaxy. Now, if you have an elliptical galaxy, it's entirely a spherical part. If you have a spiral galaxy, this would refer to the bulge part in the center of the galaxy. So um, as that bulge part gets larger, the observations of nearby galaxies have shown that the black hole that people find in the centers of these galaxies also gets larger. So this galaxy that was found at this really high redshift is going to form a very large, or should be associated with a very large galaxy. It won't form a very large galaxy, but it should be associated with a galaxy with a very large bulge.
5: Which is interesting to um, realize that the galaxies, the first galaxies that formed were so massive. those black holes were so massive.
0: That's the other thing that's interesting, too, because it's like people expect elliptical galaxies to form later in the universe. But the fact that you're forming these black holes first is uh, quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's going to uh, force astronomers to reevaluate their thoughts on how galaxies evolve exactly, because yeah. it's clear that the it's like the chicken and the egg, where it's uh, you've clearly identified one of those as coming way before the other one does. So I'll be talking about something which is not really directly related to astronomy and space science, but which seems to have had more of a psychological influence. The passing of Laird Nimoy, who died relatively recently at the age of 83. He is best known for playing Mr. Spock on Star Trek, a role that he seemed to reprise multiple times since uh, starting from when the series first aired in the late 1960s uh, up to the present. Now, he was an actor uh, playing a uh, scientist in the science fiction series. He didn't necessarily uh, do anything in the series, which really involved lots of uh, hardcore astronomy or astrophysics. But the TV series uh, was cited by a lot of astronauts, a lot of engineers, and a lot of astronomers as an inspiration for why they got involved with astronomy. And uh, one of the uh, more interesting events that actually happened uh, linking Star Trek to space science was the Space Shuttle Program. When the Space Shuttle Program was getting started in the 1970s, uh, NASA created a prototype spacecraft which was originally going to be called the Constitution. But after a massive write-in campaign by Star Trek fans, they changed the name to Enterprise. And they even invited several members of the Star Trek uh, TV series cast to uh, pose with the Enterprise spacecraft in a uh, publicity stunt in the 1970s. Uh, Larry Nimoy continued to be somewhat peripherally involved with astronomy education type things. Not only did he portray Spock in Star Trek and also portray characters in other uh, TV series and films, uh, he appeared in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, he appeared in Mission Impossible, the television series in the 1970s, but he also did a lot of narration type work. And he's narrated a couple of uh, films on astronomy-related subjects. Uh, For example, he narrated a film on the Dawn spacecraft for the NASA space program. He also narrated a film for Griffith's observatory. And he also uh, donated a substantial amount of money to Griffith's observatory so they could build a new theater, which is uh, named uh, after Leonard Nimoy as well. So I felt like uh, we should include this not because we're particularly strong Star Trek fans, but because we think a lot of our uh, listeners are deeply influenced by Star Trek as well. And so it seems like this episode would have been incomplete without uh, mention of Leonard Nimoy and his unique influence on the world today.
5: Yeah, I think um. Star Trek has had a pretty huge influence on um, people going into science, and not just directly through Star Trek, but of the way that Star Trek has influenced a lot of other science fiction and just the culture in general. In general,
4: yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, anyone anyone who's involved in in, in science at least knows a little bit of, of Star Trek, and, and there was a, a really nice picture tweeted by one of the astronauts on the ISS, I think, the other day when. Um, He performed the, uh, the sort of the split fingers Vulcan salute, uh, while flying over Nimoy's, uh, birthplace. So his legacy will, will definitely, uh, live long and prosper to use the, the phrase that, um, that everyone knows him for. Um, one of my favorite Nimoy moments was his uh, guest appearance on the Simpsons monorail episode, which was pretty fantastic. But...
5: He <laughs> <laughs> was a good uh, Simpsons guest star, wasn't he? <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: uh, being the gamer that I am, I personally uh, liked him as the narrator for Civilization Four. It was aesthetically a very good game, but uh, Leonard Nimoy's voice was just sort of like the cherry on the top in that uh, game.
4: So, um, rest in peace, Leonard Nimoy.
0: And now for someone who would be qualified to be a science officer on a starship, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky.
7: The night sky for March 2015. Well, that beautiful part of the heavens, with the constellations of Orion, Taurus, Gemini, and Canis Major, is now setting towards the western horizon in the evening. Gemini is still relatively high up with its two bright stars, Castor and Pollux, the heads of the Heavenly Twins. Moving over to the east from Castor and Pollux is a rather empty part of the sky. It's the constellation of Cancer, but with binoculars you can see a rather lovely open cluster called the Beehive Cluster. But in fact there's an interloper this month, which is Jupiter. Carrying on eastwards, we come to Leo the Lion. Its bright star is Regulus. It's like a lion, the ones in Trafalgar Square, on their haunches, shall we say. Rising over the east is a bright star Arcturus at the bottom of the constellation Bootes. And coming high overhead in the evening is the plough, part of the constellation Ursa Major. The two stars Merrick and Dupe are pointers towards the pole star, Polaris, very close to the North Celestial Pole. The other bright star you see, high above Taurus, is Capella, a yellow star in the constellation of Auriga. So still quite a nice lot of objects to look at in the sky, and we'll look at some of the planets we can see and the highlights of the month now. Well, Jupiter, having reached opposition on the 6th of February, is high in the south in late evening, So this is still a superb month to observe it, visible through much of the night. It starts March shining at magnitude minus 2.5, dropping slightly to minus 2.3 as the month progresses. Jupiter is still moving slowly westwards in retrograde motion towards the beehive cluster in Cancer. The size of Jupiter's disk falls slightly from 44.5 to 41.6 arc seconds. And with a small telescope, you should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot, and up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Now Saturn rises around midnight this month, lying in the constellation of Scorpius, very close to the left-hand star that makes the fan that represents the head. Its diameter is increasing from 16.9 to 17.8 arc seconds whilst its magnitude increases from plus 0.4 to plus 0.3. It'll be high enough in the south-southeast before dawn to make out the beautiful ring system, which has now opened out to about 25 degrees to the line of sight, virtually as open as they ever become. On March the 11th, Saturn halts its eastwards progress across the heavens as it starts its retrograde motion westwards. If only it were a little higher in the ecliptic. Sadly, its elevation never gets above 22 degrees, and so the atmosphere will hinder our view of this most beautiful planet. Perhaps a trip to the southern hemisphere is called for. Mercury. Well, Mercury, in fact, sinks into the sun's glare at the beginning of March, this is not a good month to observe it. Mars. Mars is moving eastwards relative to the stars, starting the month on the boundary between Pisces and Cetus, which it stays in for exactly one day. On the 30th of March, it moves across into Aries. It dims slightly from magnitude plus 1.3 to plus 1.4, and the angular disc falls in size from 4.3 to 4.0 arc seconds. It's about a hundred times fainter than Venus. It's best observed as darkness falls, about 15 degrees above the western horizon, so you'll need to have a good low western horizon to see it. On the 11th of March, it'll be just 18 arc minutes above Uranus. Well, Venus is now an evening object, appearing a little higher in the sky each night as the month progresses. It shines at magnitude minus 4, so it'll be easy to spot One hour after sunset, and I've seen it a couple of times in the last few days towards the end of February, and it is totally obvious. There have been some lovely conjunctions with Mars as well. Its angular size increases a little from 12 to 14 arc seconds, whilst its gibbous phase wanes from 86% to 78%. It'll appear as a small dot blurred by atmospheric turbulence. Well, finally, what about some highlights of the month? Well, there's one that's the real highlight. I'll start with that. It's on March the 20th, around 9.30 UT. There'll be a partial eclipse of the sun, which, if it's clear, will be seen across the whole of the UK. You need to go to the Night Sky page on the website. Just search for Night Sky Jotteral Bank. And there I've got a chart, a map, really, of the UK, showing how much of the sun is covered and the time at which the maximum coverage will happen. Obviously, do not attempt to view the sun directly, even when it's very largely eclipsed. You could do irreparable damage to your eyes. Eclipse glasses can be bought from many suppliers, and these have special filters, which reject the infrared light, as well as the visible light, or much of it. It's the infrared that can harm our eyes. Other filters may appear to reduce the sun's brightness, but may let in the infrared. One thing you can do is to make a pinhole camera out of a shoebox. Have a pinhole at one end, perhaps a little hole pricked into a little piece of uh, metal foil, and that can project an image of the sun onto the far end. That's quite a nice way to do it. I hope to be seeing the eclipse from a ship between Iceland and the Faroes, but to be totally honest, there's probably more chance of you seeing it here in the UK than in the path of totality, because the probability of cloud is about 80%. It should be a bit better here. So I do hope you have a chance to see it. The rest of the highlights, well, one thing I do is to give you a list on the night sky page of the times when the great red spot is facing the Earth. So plus or minus an hour or so, you've got a good chance to see it. Between March the 1st and the 7th, after sunset, Venus and Mars lie within 5 degrees of each other. And in fact, on the 7th, Uranus will lie almost halfway between them. On March the 4th, Venus and Uranus are just six minutes apart. That's quite something. Now, Venus at magnitude minus four is around 10,000 times brighter than Uranus at magnitude plus 5.9. So, in fact, you probably would find it hard to spot Uranus in the glare of Venus. One thing to do is to use a high power eyepiece with a telescope and just move Venus out of the field of view. That might give you a chance to see it. It's the closest planetary conjunction in 2015. Well, to end with, on March the 21st, you can find Mars with a very thin, waxing crescent moon, low above the western horizon, just after sunset. They're just two degrees apart. That would make a very nice imaging opportunity. And on the 22nd, the moon will have risen higher in the sky, and it's actually very close to venus just three degrees away so that's another nice imaging opportunity so let's hope you see the eclipse or the partial eclipse and some other nice sights in the sky as well
0: thanks for that ian and now for our southern hemisphere here's claire brotherton with the night sky where you are
6: kiaola and welcome to the march jodcast from carter observatory in wellington new zealand As we approach the autumn equinox on the 21st of March, our evenings are quickly drawing in, with our nights lasting almost an hour and a half longer at the end of the month than the beginning. Whilst unfortunately this means that the colder winter weather is on its way, it also means that we have more time to get outside observing our beautiful southern skies. Our summer constellations of Canis Major, Orion and Taurus are now in our northwest evening skies. Sirius, or Takarua, the brightest star in our nighttime sky at magnitude minus 1.46, is almost overhead, with Rigel at magnitude 0. 0.12 and Betelgeuse at around magnitude 0. 0.42 below. Between these two stars are the three stars of Orion's belt, known as Totoru here in New Zealand. These stars point down towards the horizon, past a triangle of stars that form the head of Taurus the bull. The brightest of these is Aldebaran an orange giant star located 65 light-years away, marking the eye of the bull. With an apparent magnitude of around 0.85, Aldebaran is also one of the brightest stars in our nighttime sky, although not quite as bright as Sirius, Rigel or Betelgeuse. The fainter stars of the V are formed by the more distant Hyades star cluster. In Greek mythology, they are the half-sisters of the Pleiades. This cluster is estimated to be about 150 light-years away, and contains over 100 stars that are brighter than ninth magnitude. Below the V shape and close to the horizon are the Pleiades themselves, known as Matariki here in New Zealand. The rising of this group of stars for the first time before the sun around June marks the beginning of the Maori New Year. Canopus, the second brightest star in our nighttime sky, is just to the southwest of overhead, with bright blue Akana a little below. These two stars form a roughly equilateral triangle with the southern celestial pole, the point right above the south pole of the Earth, about which the sky appears to rotate as the Earth spins on its axis. Unlike the northern hemisphere, we have no nearby bright star to mark this point, so we have to estimate it from the surrounding stars. Perhaps the easiest way to find the southern celestial pole is to look for crux, the southern cross, high in the southeast this month, with the pointers Alpha and Beta Centauri below. Simply point one hand at Gamma Crucis at the short end of the cross and the other at Achenar and bring them together in the middle, and you should be close to this point. Dropping your hands down to the horizon will then give you south. Not far from the southern celestial pole, you may be able to spot two small fuzzy patches of light, easily seen with the naked eye on a dark, moonless night. These are the large and small Magellanic Clouds, two small irregular dwarf galaxies that neighbour our own. Whilst these galaxies are much smaller than the Milky Way, combined they still contain billions of stars. The Large Magellanic Cloud, or LMC, is the higher of the two and is located 160,000 light years away. Look out for a number of young star clusters, visible as small patches of light in binoculars or a small telescope. Smaller and more distant, at around 200,000 light years, is the Small Magellanic Cloud, or SMC. A bridge of gas connects the large and small clouds, evidence of tidal interaction between the two. The best time to look out for these galaxies is around the new moon on the 20th of the month, when they will be high in the south after dark. Dominating our northern skies this month is bright Jupiter, setting in the northwest in the early hours of the morning. The moon passes close to Jupiter on both the 3rd and the 30th of the month. Venus also continues to make a brief appearance in our skies this month, low in the west at dusk. At the beginning of the month, it will set around an hour after the sun, but by the end, this will be around an hour and a half, and by mid-April, it will be visible after the end of twilight. Saturn is now rising in the east before midnight, and by the end of March, it will be visible by around 10pm. It sits just below the claws of Scorpius the Scorpion, our winter constellation in the southern hemisphere. In New Zealand, this constellation is known as Temato a Maui, the fishhook of Maui, that Maui used to pull the great fish out of the ocean that became the North Island of New Zealand. The moon will pass close to Saturn on the 12th of the month. Slightly higher and further towards the south is the orangey-red star Antares, which marks the heart of the scorpion. To Maui, this star is known as Rehua, and represents a drop of blood that Maui pulled from his nose to use as bait. Saturn is a wonderful sight through even a modest small telescope which will reveal its beautiful rings and its largest moon Titan. Titan is the second largest moon in the solar system and is larger in size than the planet Mercury. It is the only moon in our solar system known to retain a substantial atmosphere and is also the only other body except Earth to have bodies of surface liquid. These rivers, lakes and seas are not made of water, which would freeze solid in Titan's minus 180 degrees centigrade temperatures, but are made of liquid methane. Mercury is coming to the end of its best morning appearance of the year this month, rising towards the east by around 5 a.m. at the beginning of March. By the end of the month, it will be rising less than an hour before the sun and will become lost in the morning twilight. It was great to welcome some Northern Hemisphere Jodcast listeners to Carter this month, during their travels around New Zealand. If any of our listeners do find their way to Wellington, we'd love you to come and say hello. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory.
0: Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. So we've had no posts, but we've had several emails. Indy, the first one?
4: Yep, so uh, this is we've had an email from Francis Day. Who wrote in about really liking our 404 not found page. So she says, you guys have the best 404 I've seen. Now I don't feel at all frustrated that I can't follow up the link on the ages of stars. Well, maybe a little bit, but thanks for making me laugh instead of tearing out more hair. The January extra edition was terrific. One of the best. Thanks to all. Well, thanks a lot for that, Francis. And we will, uh, we will try and fix the, the link so you don't have to see the 404 page. Penny
0: Jackson wrote an email about pointing the telescope at the sun, saying, I deliberately pointed a radio telescope at the sun. I was calibrating the pointing of the radio telescope in the physics department in Bristol. And the sun is a good, strong radio source with known location and time. And we were having such difficulty with the telescope that we couldn't see anything other than the sun and man-made sources. We knew something was seriously wrong the day it couldn't actually see the sun at all. And it turned out something inside had melted. We suspect lightning strike was responsible rather than our solar calibration.
5: And we've had another email from Peter Trianos, who is sending greetings from the Bellarine Peninsula, I think is in Australia. He says, hi gang, just letting you know I love the show and enjoy listening to it while I'm bike riding along the Bellarine Rail Trail in Victoria, Australia. Keep up the good work and jod on. Thanks.
4: Thanks for that, Peter. Um, we'd just like to thank, uh, all the vigilant listeners, uh, who complained when they couldn't get their regular Jodcast fixed because the RSS feed was broken. So thanks for letting us know about that on, uh, on Facebook and Twitter. It was just a typo, uh, when we uploaded the show and, uh, got it fixed as quickly as you, uh, as quickly as we could. But yeah, obviously do let us know if anything, uh, goes wrong with the show or you can't listen to any part of your beloved Jodcast. Thanks for all the likes on Facebook, all the new followers on Twitter, and all the retweets and follow Fridays.
0: And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
5: On Twitter, twitter.com slash jodcast.
4: On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast.
5: On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast.
4: And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. And
0: thanks to Dr. Rowan Smith for the interview. The editors were Adam Avison, Monique Henson, Mark Perver, and Charlie Walker. The producer was Andy LeClerc. Until next time, ciao, ja Dan! Ja Dan.